This is The Guardian. I'm Faker Rothers and welcome to the Guardian Women's Football Weekly. Chelsea and Arsenal's Champions League dreams are over for another season. Hopefully the sight of Leah Williamson pulling pints has at least softened the blow a little bit. But Arsenal's ACL curse continues with yet another player on the treatment table. Meanwhile in the WSL, did we witness the best game in the league's history at the Poundland Bescott Stadium? Something I never thought I would ever say. And the relegation battle intensifies. We'll discuss all of that, plus take your questions. And that's today's Guardian Women's Football Weekly. Well, what a panel, all fresh from the Emirates we have with us today. But I'm sure, Susie Rack, you are absolutely gutted. Yes and no. I sort of went into that match thinking that Arsenal had nothing to lose and it's almost impressive that by the end of it, it felt like they had lost. Gutted because of the manner of the defeat, but also like the fact that they were even there in that semi-final, it was just impressive in and of itself to a certain extent. I like it. Alex Ibiceta, I saw you uh, with your photos pitch side. I mean, what a moment. Yeah, it was... Uh, I mean, result aside, I think the the occasion was quite emotional. I think for for a lot of people, it was it was very. I don't even know how to explain it. I think it was very raw <laughs> in football environment of everyone <clears throat> kind of enjoying the day as as a whole rather than just you know the football match. Um, and I thought it was really impressive the way that everybody was behind Arsenal. Um, you know, Wolfsburg scored and. The people started cheering Arsenal um, every single thing, Madison's breaker, every single ball she got out of the air. It could have been the simplest of catches. Um, the crowd started cheering every tackle, every everything. The crowd was was behind the team. And I thought that was that was very emotional, um, I think, for everyone. So it was nice. It was indeed. James Lewis, I'm not even going to talk to you about the game. Not yet, anyway. We're going to go in depth with it in a, in a second. I want to talk to you about Veg because <laughs> I saw um, the other day you post up broccoli and saying, I don't even like Veg. And I don't know if you listen um, to the Guardian Football Weekly um, with Max Rushton, but I think it's Mark Langdon who doesn't like Veg. And it's brought up every single time he's on the pod. Maybe this is your thing. <laughs> It was delicious. It was absolutely delicious. I was in Nando's, thought, let me try something different. Let me get some broccoli. Had some lemon and herb sauce on it. Absolutely incredible. And for a man who doesn't like veg, impressive. Maybe you've been turned. Wonderful. Right, let's start at the Emirates, shall we? Arsenal 2, Wolfsburg 3 on the night. Wolfsburg go through 5-4 on aggregate. And it was just heartbreak for Arsenal, conceding a 119th minute winner from former Manchester City striker Paulina Bremer to exit the Champions League in front of a record crowd. A goal from Stina Blackstenius had put them 1-0 up after 11 minutes before Jill Roard came back to haunt her old club in the knockout stages yet again with an equaliser just before half-time. Alex Pop nodded in to give Wolfsburg the lead in the second half after Arsenal had another Blackstenius goal ruled narrowly offside but Jem Beattie popped up to equalise after 75 minutes to push the game to extra time. It really looked like we were heading to penalties until substitute Eula Brand pounced on a lot of Ruben Moy error for Bremer to score that late winner. 
You've said it's not heart-wrenching, Susie, but hearing it kind of back from from end to end, um, it probably feels like it. But equally, as you said at, at the top, it's been a, a pretty remarkable Champions League campaign all round, really. I mean, just a remarkable season when you look at the injuries that have stacked up, obviously, and like how influential the players are missing are. And yet you put in... A performance like that, I, it, like phenomenal stuff, really. I think it's more the manner of conceding so, so deep into extra time and that it's Lotta Wobbamoy with the error, losing possession of the ball to Brand, um, you know, who then plays it back for Prema to pop in. It is particularly hard. She just looks so crushed in that moment and then on the full-time whistle as well just like absolutely broken you know obviously lifelong Arsenal fan was in the press uh, the day before the match talking about how much of a dream it was to be playing at a sold out Emirates how it's a dream that didn't exist when she was a child because it was just like so so far removed from reality and then to be responsible for to a certain extent for the goal that that loses it and doesn't send you to a Champions League final is really, really brutal. But yet, she was phenomenal across both legs. Obviously provided the assist for Jen, set up a goal in the first leg. It feels very, very harsh if any blame falls on her when, yeah, she was just brilliant across both. I haven't seen anybody blaming lots of Uber Moy. I mean, it would be like shooting Bambi's mum, I think. But uh, I think it's... Fair to say that this was a, a step too far for Arsenal, Alex, really, given all their injuries, the quality um, that Wolfsburg were able to bring off the bench as the match went on as well. I mean, yeah, when you when you started the match, you kind of knew that the biggest advantage that Wolfsburg had over Arsenal was the bench at the end of the day. And you knew that Arsenal couldn't afford extra time and you knew they couldn't afford not one injury on the pitch. And luckily, they mostly went through no injuries. Obviously, the Laura Van Radir, um, she came out as a sub and unfortunately got injured. So that was um, bad. But at the same time, I thought uh, Cord was was a good player to be replaced. Um, the way that you understood it, I could question. Um, but other than that, I think Arsenal kind of knew that them going to extra time was kind of good. Could have potentially have been the downfall. I think at the end of the day, when you make a mistake like Lata did, you really have to put it down to, to tiredness. Um, I mean, she's played, you know, she's been obligated to play for both legs and she's not had the minutes. And I'm not going to, I'm not saying that that's exactly the reason, but at the end of the day, when, you know, your legs aren't going to be as, as sharp to make that cut that she wanted to do. Um, and a player like Eula Brand, who has just come on and has the legs that she does <laughs> in terms of length, um, I thought that that steal was quite easy for her. And, and kudos to her for for squaring it because she could have gotten the glory. Um, she was well capable of making a shot from there. But yeah, I think for Arsenal, it was it was it feels more of a loss than what it did. I thought um, they were well up for the occasion and clearly they were, you know, it was very unfortunate to get so many goals called offside and, you know, a few opportunities missed. And at the end of the day, I thought it was, it was an even match as well. Um, you know, Wolfsburg and Arsenal had very similar chances, amount of chances. They had similar possession. Um, 
and it was up for grabs for for anybody. I think Arsenal could have done exactly the same that Wolfsburg did. It was to grab a last minute winner up top, um, but obviously it went Wolfsburg way. But yeah, I think Arsenal should be proud. Um, it is, you know, it is gutting because they could have done it despite everything in the background and despite the injuries. I think they had a team to do it and they luck just didn't go their way essentially. So now we, we go to the final without Arsenal. I had a, a slightly terrible feeling uh, going into this game that Arsenal had lost the game in the first leg in the sense that the two Wolfsburg goals were very much gifted to a certain extent, particularly the second one. And obviously they had that massive fight back, which was really impressive. But I, I worried that that would come back to bite them at the Emirates. Yeah, it's, it's interesting actually that, that um, Susie makes that point, James, because Arsenal probably uh, obviously be frustrated with the first leg, but maybe also frustrated with the beginning of this one as well, because they could have made a little bit more of their start, perhaps. Wolfsburg looked a little bit overawed by the occasion, maybe. Yeah, I think it's always a case of if you can get an early goal, try and just really pressure the team. Because you don't know that kind of, especially the roar that Arsenal fans gave the team. I think I felt that was the best time to really try and get two goals early. Wolfsburg didn't really like what happened after that first goal. They didn't look as assured as they did in the first leg. And I thought if Arsenal was really going like, to put them to the sword, they could have done it in the first half. But I think sometimes they, I felt like Arsenal were trying to settle in even after they scored that first goal. They were just kind of trying to get their pa- passing patterns together. And then they just kind of relaxed. And I felt like that kind of let Wolfsburg off the edge. Yeah, um, both those Wolfsburg goals in normal time came from set pieces, Susie, and and Manuela Zinsberger looked a little bit nervous at a few corners. I mean, you kind of would do with Alexandra uh, Pop lurking around your six-yard box, but she obviously popped up and, and scored. Jill Rod left with all the time in the world to pick her spot for the first one as well. But when Jonas Eidevel kind of goes back over this match, which he inevitably will pick it to pieces, what's he going to pinpoint as as Arsenal's main weakness, would you say? Set pieces are a massive one. Like all season, they've struggled from set pieces. I think I, I remember turning to Johnny Lou, the first Wolfsburg corner, and just going like really, really worry for Arsenal whenever they, they've got the ball on the ground <laughs> for a minute. Um, like they've, I don't know, they're just obviously there's issues with uh, Nolia Williamson having to play in a back three, the relationships between those players at the back not necessarily being as strong as you know, the back two of Leah Raffaelli or Leah and Lotta. But yeah, I like that's obviously a huge issue. Um, injuries is obviously a huge issue. Literally, how much can you do when like ninety percent of your players are, are falling by the wayside? I think Ryan Reuters' injury looked really bad. When you see it back, it looks like another ACL. Um, and that well, we, I like. We, we, we haven't had this confirmed yet, but if it is another ACL, that would be three of Arsenal's four ACLs this season done at the Emirates. Has there got to be something looked into that? I think there has to be something looked into everything mm. because no team should be having four ACLs in a season. As I say, at the time of recording, we don't have any confirmation of, of uh, Laura Wien Reuters 
injury, but it is worrying, very worrying going forward. Um, I'll tell you what's worrying from an England point of view or actually heartening, I would say, from an England point of view in many ways and perhaps a lesson learned for for loss of Uben Moy because as Susie said, Alex, it... You know, gutting that it ha- that she had to be the player that that happened to, but at the same time, you know, credit to to Wolfsburg who brought on Eula Brand and she really changed the game. I felt in in extra time, she just had that burst of energy that allowed her to close Vuban Moy down and and win the ball off her. And she'd had a great match before that, but you can't switch off even just for for one moment, can you? At this level, yeah, I think it's it's quite evident the timing of it as well. Um, you know, you're you're kind of. I think everybody had their their minds on penalties already, and unfortunately, that's what happens when you kind of switch off just for one second and you relax. Um, I think the players, especially Arsenal, I think were obviously playing for for penalties mostly because of of that firepower that was had in Arsenal, didn't? And um, you know, there's there's no playing that down. There's no kind of getting away with it. You know, Jan Bidi was struggling with the cramp. Um, these players were absolutely exhausted by the end of it and that was fine but you know get your head together you you, you can't be trying to to make a, a simple cut when a Eula brand is, is coming right at you really fresh I thought it was poor decision making um, period you know doesn't matter what time of, of the match that is um, Lata just wasn't really thinking straight in that in that moment and that's you know it's football it's it's the beautiful game of football you know one little mistake literally costs you an entire Champions League season and yeah it was uh, it, it was gutting but at the end of the day yet yeah, I think Wolfsburg always had that advantage I think after the first leg um, they knew that that's you know they were the better team than Arsenal man by man because quite literally they had about six other players but I think I think Lata should kind of put her head up. I thought she was absolutely crucial in in the overall play because when you look at the Arsenal side again, when you looked at Arsenal going up against a very strong Wolfsburg side, I mean in the first leg, you know, Yulia Brand and Jan Sutter played together. That's just a stupidly scary spot prospects when you have both players on the pitch. Um, and I thought Lata, Jen, and Rafa did did really well again. You know, Rafa did give away a mistake in the first half. Um, in the first leg as well but when you kind of you expected much less of the Arsenal defence solely because you know these players are called upon because there's literally no other options and lots of Jen haven't had many minutes in the overall season I thought I think you know Jonas's trusted back four is quite evident um, when you look at Leah and Rafa and and Steph Catley and uh, Noel Maritz and that's quite evident, and you know that lots of Jen weren't getting as many minutes, and now you know they're they're starring in a Champions League summer final. It, it's not, you know, it's it's quite a lot of pressure to have on your shoulders, and I thought they did, did well. So lots of should, you know, should focus on that. At the end, you know, you you can't. It's easier to say, you know, that she's only going to focus on that one mistake that she did, and it is a lot of weight on her shoulders because quite evidently that single mistake did cost Arsenal um, the Champions League final. So you just kind of have to motivate her. Um, from from the inside now. Yeah, I feel as if it, she's the type of player that will that will motivate herself uh, for, for, for sure. Despite that result, James, Arsenal sold out the Emirates for the first time. 60,000 tickets, such a great atmosphere 
on a beautiful evening as well. It's been an amazing ride actually in the Champions League for Arsenal this season, as we said earlier on, and it felt like the send-off they deserved, even if they couldn't couldn't make the final, which seems like a strange thing to say, but you know what I mean? Yeah, 100%. I think that performance that the Arsenal team gave, I thought that really showed what a team can do when they all work together, when they all give 100%. Like the fact Steph Catley and Katie McCabe were constantly getting massages, like going into extra time and just what Jen Beattie gave. And like a lot of people weren't really expecting it because it was kind of like once those injuries happened, people were like, what's going to happen to our defence? Where's the goals going to come from? If obviously Viv and Mead aren't there, but players step up in those crucial moments. And I think people like Lotto Bamoy and Jen Beattie, they did. Yep, they really did. Um, and it, it just wasn't meant to be for Arsenal. It wasn't meant to be for Chelsea either. Finished Barcelona 1, Chelsea 1, uh, Barcelona 2-1 winners on aggregate. It, it feels like that other semi-final uh, happened about a million years ago. So much has gone on since. Chelsea became the first team in 80 matches to not lose to Barcelona at home, but it was not enough as a one-all draw at Camp Nou, saw them go out 2-1 on aggregate. A Caroline Graham Hansen goal looked to have put the tie beyond Chelsea. Um, it was very early on in the game until Guru Wrighton equalised just four minutes later. Chelsea couldn't find the extra goal needed to send the match to extra time though. And it kind of felt just like the Arsenal game, Susie, as if uh, as if this game could have been described as, as a valiant effort, which sounds patronising. But I think bearing in mind the way the seasons have gone, I think it's fair. Yeah, I mean, like, you can't overlook Chelsea's huge number of injuries as well. Obviously, no Kadisha Buchanan, no Millie Bright, um, no Penina Harder for much of the season. Obviously, came on in this game and, like, for the first time in this year. And no Frank Kirby for most of the season as well. So, like, yeah, huge results at the new Camp. But again, damage done in the first leg. I think the 80-game thing is impressive. Um, taking a draw away from the new Camp is impressive. But I... I just felt like Chelsea were playing to not lose badly rather than to win the game. I felt like it was a little bit too late for them to really try and push for a, a winner. And maybe that's a bit harsh given, you know, we've seen what Barcelona do to teams, uh, particularly at home, like absolutely tend to shreds, um, you know, Rosengard 6-0, Roma 5-1, Bayern Munich 3-0. Maybe you don't want to play and open yourself up but when you're trying to reach a Champions League final you sort of have to go for it at some point and I feel like they left it a little bit too late to go for it if that makes mm. sense yeah it, it absolutely does make sense but I mean looking from a, a positive side for for Chelsea going forwards Alex you, you don't see that many teams come to Barcelona and frustrate them and and their kind of compact setup meant that they did exactly that to, to Barcelona more than other teams have managed to recently. Yeah, I thought it was kind of a, let's say a one-off. Um, I thought Chelsea didn't play well, Barcelona didn't play well. So it wasn't a a match where you can kind of say that this is what would happen if Chelsea and Barcelona play against each other. Um, I thought they were both exhausted. I think Chelsea, we quite know, is evidently quite exhausted. We look at their fixture list from now to the end of the season. I think the max rest they have between matches is about four days. Um, and it, so it's, you know, Chelsea are exhausted. Barcelona as well, you know, they've 
they've played a, a lot of games um, and have been dominating in, in the league. And that is exhausting, <laughs> um, just as much as they dominate in Champions League. So it, it was a very diluted match, I would say. And it's quite evident that Barcelona were, they were fine with the result. I think that says more about Barcelona than does Chelsea, the fact that Barcelona didn't really have to shift the next year to, to beat Chelsea, essentially. And yeah, you know, they drew, but at the end of the day, that's all they needed. And Barcelona showed up when they needed to. Um, Chelsea's goal was exactly the goal that you expected them to score against Barcelona. And, you know, Barca did have a lot. From what I saw, I thought Barcelona had a lot more chances. Um, And essentially, that's always going to be Barcelona's weakness, is their inability to finish all the chances that they create. Um, when they look at the chances create and the actual goals they score, it's 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 quite evident. Um, and they still score so high because that's how many chances they create. So um, when you look at the balance of that, it's quite easy. But I thought, yeah, I thought it was evident that Barcelona were much the much better team, even though the match didn't necessarily show that. I'm going to talk to Susie about Guru Wrighton in a second because we've been waxing lyrical about her on the pod all season. But James, I want to talk about Caroline Graham Hansen first of all, because if any player was going to unlock Chelsea, it, it was going to be her, wasn't it? Yeah, I think she's she's an honour to watch. I think she's a 1v1 demon, that one player that you don't want to be by yourself against because she's just very unpredictable. I think she's one of the few players that will drag back a ball. They won't just immediately cross it. Like she'll try and do like a ball roll or something like that. She always wants to make the defender guess. Whereas I think a lot of wingers can be quite predictable. And I think that's the scariest thing about her. You don't know what's coming next. And I love the fact that she just always wants to attack. Sometimes you can have like a great winger that always wants to like give it back, but she's always like, I'm going to take you on. I'm going to try my best. And like, I'm, you're going to give up before I'm going to give up. And I think that's what allows her to win so many duels. And just the way how she lets shots go, I think that's a great thing. You always want a winger that wants to shoot as well and not just cross. Because sometimes you won't have strikers that are doing the job. But if you have a winger that's happily to like take on that burden and try and get goals as well, like she's done in both legs. Yeah, she's she's incredible. I'd like to see more of this for Norway as well. I think this is quite like there's a difference between her at Barcelona and her at Norway. So I'd like to see this kind of player at Norway as well. And actually, we may be starting to see that from Guru Wrighton, her her international teammate as well, because she's always kind of been seen more as an assist machine. But this season, with exactly how James has just described Caroline Graham Hansen, you could pretty much you know, cut and paste and uh, an insert for Guru Wrighton, Susie? Yeah, you could. She's had a phenomenal season, really stepped up with the absence of Harder and Kirby. And I mean, you look at the front three of Norway as we did at the Euros in the summer, those two and Anna Hagerberg in between them. And you just think that's one of the like scariest attacks on the planet. It's a shame that they don't have the defence behind them in particular. You, you sort of run out of ways of talking about Guru in the same way that you do about Graham Hansen. I mean, Graham Hansen, I think, is a cut above. I think she's the best winger in the world. It's criminal that she's not ever been nominated for the shortlisted for the Ballon d'Or. But yeah, Guru Wrighton, I think, has really thrust herself into the spotlight and plays with a lot of passion, which is really satisfying to watch as well. 
Speaking about the Ballon d'Or, um, Alex, a quick word on Alexia Puteas. We thought we might see her return against Chelsea, but the game was a little bit too tense for that in the end. Did see her, though, return this weekend against Sporting Huelva. Have I pronounced that right? How bad is my Spanish? It's terrible, that was, isn't it? That was good, actually. Really? Okay, yeah. all right. I didn't even do GCSE Spanish. I can't <laughs> even say I've got that. Um, but it was it was just in time to to, to lift the, the league trophy for the fourth consecutive year. I can see your Alexia shirt in the background of your of your zoom shots um champions league final when are we you know uh, how much more of an impact can she make this season it's a hard one to call i think champions league final might be too soon i think i think barcelona have gotten to the point where they can afford to not have electrical things in the midfield and you wouldn't wow you wouldn't yeah (laughs) it's a strong statement um i think barcelona have you know they did struggle at the beginning of the season, I think everybody knew that um, they struggled. And even if they were winning matches, they were winning matches not in the way that they wanted to. And they were quite vocal about that. The fact that let's say they won 4-2, 4-1, you know, they're going to be focusing on those two goals conceded on the the way they played and they were just not happy with it. And I think it was quite evident that, it, you know, Alex Cordiaz was missing. Um Particularly, Adana Bormadi was was trying to become Alexia and that's not what the team needed. And eventually she found that out and now... Barcelona are working, you know, the the way that they always have. And I think it's quite nice for Alexia to to come back and not feel that pressure. Um, I think she she might have felt that pressure at the beginning because of how much Barcelona missed her. But now that Barcelona have gotten to the rhythm, rhythm um, I think they can afford to to leave Alexia on the bench and make, let her come back at her own rhythm. Um, as we said, you know, the Chelsea match was a bit premature, um, so whether that that be because of the medical staff or, or her, um, she she can you know not have that pressure on her shoulders and just come back at her own time without having to start because the team needs her if that makes sense. Um, but I thought I thought it was quite symbolic and um, the fact that she came back and um, put the captain's armband as soon as she came in went up to lift the trophy. I think that says her her importance in in the team outside of the football thing. Um, you know she is essentially probably the most hardworking you know footballer in, in, in the world essentially everything she does is for football and um, everything she does you know is to make her a better footballer her days off she will enjoy them because that will make her a better footballer <laughs> because rest will because rest will make it that's essentially you know the way she thinks so to have her I think to have her on the sideline and um, kind of brought out a new side of her in terms of the, the role that she took on as a captain you know she was there she was traveling to a lot of the games um, and she was present for a lot of the team. So the fact that she came in, put the camp storm band and lifted the trophy on her first match back, I thought was um, quite symbolic to, to how important she is to the team off the pitch. And again, I think they can afford to kind of have her back. So I don't know if she will be starting in the Champions League final. She'll probably definitely make an appearance. But like I said, I think Barcelona are fine without her at the moment. Is it the right final for you, James? Uh, Barcelona-Wolfsburg in Eindhoven? Yeah, I think it's it's all about who can get it done, no matter what the circumstances, no matter what happens. Both teams, like, they, they face their challenges, but both teams were able to get past all those challenges. And it's going to be a great final, but I do feel it's going to be a very easy tie for Barca. I feel like, like Wolfsburg, Wolfsburg will put up a fight, but I think the way how Barcelona were able to just nullify Chelsea, I think I could see the same thing happening to Wolfsburg. 
I was trying to, to, to watch Alex's face then and there was a tiny little bit of a, <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> Susie, just to wrap this all up, I mean, historically, there's been a bit of a suggestion that English teams just aren't at the same level as their European counterparts. The league is, is clearly stronger all round, um, but not necessarily that, you know, competitiveness against the bigger teams but how do you assess both Arsenal and Chelsea's Champions League runs do you feel as if both of these semis kind of obviously they lost but do they dispel that that myth yeah I like to a certain extent yes um obviously to a certain extent knowing that like neither of them went through but I think that they both results speak to the strength of the Women's Super League and that um you you know you've got this this situation where both are really struggling to maintain challenges in all competitions across the length of the season, that injuries are piling up for both, um, and that speaks to the competitiveness of the Women's Super League. You know, there's no games where you can rest players. There's no games where you can, you know, decide to sit out a player here and there. As much as the Liga is a great league, Barcelona can do that to a certain extent if they need to. In France, Lyon and PSG can do that. In Germany, Wolfsburg and Bayern can do that to a certain extent. Like there aren't a huge number of shock results, and I'd say it's it's a relatively recent phenomenon that there is in the Women's Super League. Um, you know, usually the league is decided by the games between the top uh, three, now four, but. I think that's changed in the last two seasons, maybe, um, where the competitive level of the whole league has stepped up in gear. You know, the likes of Aston Villa, even Brighton now in the past you know, week and a half or something, uh, you know, or Leicester. I mean, all of these teams are starting to provide real hard challenges uh, for the teams at the top uh, in a way that is both a benefit to the development of the league and these teams but also like not necessarily that helpful when you're trying to go far in Europe at the same time that's like it's the it's the problem in the men's side in the men's game as well isn't it for the Premier League um you know it's not necessarily very geared up to um encourage success in Europe in a way that that some other leagues do yeah, I know exactly what you mean. That's it for part one. In part two, we'll look at what went on in the WSL over the weekend. Welcome back to part two of the Guardian Women's Football Weekly. Right, so away from the bright lights of the Champions League, there was football that was just as dramatic under the bright lights of the Poundland Bescott Stadium. Aston Villa 2, Manchester United 3 is how it finished. Rachel Daly gave Villa an early lead, but Leah Galton equalised before Daly put Villa ahead again. This time, Nikita Paris equalised and it seemed as if we were heading for a draw until substitute Millie Turner popped up with a header from a Katie Zellum free kick to win in added time. Um, Susie, some people were calling this the best WSL game ever. Discuss. I mean, I think that's a stretch. <laughs> There's been some pretty good WSL games. I think of the Chelsea-Arsenal opening day of the season at the Emirates a few years back and things like that. Like, There's been some really great end-to-end games. I mean, it was a great game. But whether it's the best game ever, I mean, 
not too sure about that. Thrilling, yes. Best game ever, not so sure. I mean... Right, whoever came up with that, Susie Rack says no, all right? Bow to her (laughs) expertise on this one. (laughs) It's it's easy to do that, isn't it? When you've watched a thrilling game like that is to then put it in a... In, in some kind of um, ranking system. But Susie, Susie says no. But James United are making a bit of a habit of these kind of late shows, aren't they? Um, is that the mark of a never-say-die attitude team or that they're running the risk of, of slipping up far too often? I think as an Arsenal fan, I'm quite fed up now. I think United are starting to connect the dots. I feel like they understand how it should be now they understand like they need to get these points so they're managing to get these points so it's quite frustrating as an Arsenal fan but I can see them going all the way well I was going to ask that exact question Alex where exactly does this result leave United the supercomputer at 538 I'm reliably told by producer Jesse is giving Chelsea a 50% chance to win the league and United a 46% chance. Uh, better to have the points on the board or the games in hand? One of those eternal questions in football. Yeah, it's uh, it's a hard one to, to kind of look at. I think Chelsea have the... I don't know if that prediction would kind of take into the account um, the, the fixture schedule, essentially, um, which I think might be the, the reason why Chelsea might slip up. Um, and I'm not saying that they would, but essentially... Man United have the points on the board and now it's all down to Chelsea, you know, getting the job done. And essentially, like, you know, I'm looking at the schedule right now and the match rest days they have in between matches is six days and that's at the end of the season. Before that, it's three days, four days, uh, rest days between matches. And, you you know, you're not talking about easy matches. Um, you're talking about playing the FA Cup final against Man United, just then you're playing West Ham, then you're playing Arsenal. Um, and, you know, the teams that Chelsea have to play is, it's friendly in the sense that you're not playing, you know, you're only playing Arsenal as kind of that top team, but we have seen Chelsea drop points against a bottom of the table team, essentially. And, you know, when you look at the, the Leicesters, the Liverpools, the Reddings, they have a lot to lose. And, and Chelsea, essentially, it sounds dumb to say, but Chelsea just have another league title to lose. And, you know, when you've won four consecutive ones, you won them with a fifth, a fifth one. But at the end of the day, it's it's not as pressing as getting relegated. Um, so, you know, you might see an upset there, but I think essentially it's, it's Chelsea's to lose. Um, I think obviously, you know, with the games at hand, they have that advantage, but they do have to get, you know, maximum points to kind of keep up with Man United because Man United, you, you would kind of, Chelsea would kind of hope that they drop points against Man City, but at the same time, you know, Man United just have to play Liverpool and Tottenham. And again, you know, the same could apply to, to Man United in the sense that these teams have a lot to lose and it could be it could be gone, but, you know, Man United didn't have to play the Champions League against Barcelona over two legs. Um, you know, Chelsea have had that burden pressed upon them and trying to beat Barcelona exert so much energy and that's not just Barcelona you know playing a, a Champions League semi-final will take up a lot of your energy both physically and mentally and Man United haven't had to do that so you would kind of give the edge to Man United in terms of, of league games and being prepared for that um, but yeah I think on a point system and you look at the, the teams that Chelsea have to play you would give them the, the kind of advantage to, to win the league but then you look at the details of 
the mental, you know, fatigue, the physical fatigue, the rest days in between, and the pressure of the teams they're playing against not to get relegated. You know, all those factors do add up. Um, so I think I think Man United right now are comfortable and they have a right to be. I think, you know, if we talk about that, that winner they got to get against Anstub and we can we can debate that that was it really a foul. Um, where the goal came from, I thought that was um, I don't think that was far. I think point blank that wasn't a foul. Um, so it was kind of it kind of sucked for Aston Villa to to concede that late in in the matter of of that foul. But I think Man United have the the confidence to be able to go into this league um, quite happily with where they're sat. I know you have a point to make on that, Susie. But can I ask you a question within your point, if that's all right? Okay, so Sue Klesnick has uh, has tweeted, and it's more of a statement than a than, than a question. Um, but they say with Chelsea Arsenal injuries and City losing so many key players at the beginning of the season, um, anything less than cha- than making Champions League and winning the FA Cup is a failure for United this season. What say you? I mean, they've got to make Champions League. Like, I think anything less than Champions League is a failure. If they lose an FA Cup final to Chelsea, I mean, not great in the circumstances, given that, you know, Chelsea obviously bruised from the Champions League and a lot of injuries piling up. United are playing so well at the moment um, and have, have really been almost lucky in the way that games have fallen for them, that they've not had any... In- like big injuries to key players because they've not got the largest squad in the world. Um, but yeah, like, yeah, I, I don't, I don't think it'd be a failure if they didn't win the FA Cup. I like, I, I'm starting to think it'd be a failure if they didn't win the league, to be honest, <laughs> uh, given the, the situation around them. But, uh, but no, for me, like ultimately, as long as they get Champions League, I think they'll be satisfied to a certain extent not particularly happy given the position they put themselves in but satisfied at least like I think um I think the FA Cup is actually going to have a massive say on the outcome of the season because I think like that's a real like momentum shift for whichever side loses it um going into those final few games of the season I mean you know Chelsea got West Ham afterwards but then play Arsenal at home um and uh, United's first game after it is the City game at home. Um, like they're huge. I think that weekend is going to have a massive say on the destination of the title. And I think whatever team comes out of the FA Cup final, the happier is going to take that into those games and that weekend. And that could actually have quite a big influence on things. So. I, I think it's still really open. I just you just can never ever write Chelsea off, right? Like no matter how bad and bruised they are, you just can never write them off. Mm, and and James, don't ever write off Leicester City either at the moment because the WSL relegation battle took another twist. Leicester thrashed Liverpool by four goals to nil. Josie Green, Carrie Jones, Ashley Plontree and Missy Goodwin um, lifted a dominant Leicester off the bottom of the table into the dizzying heights of 10th. Unbelievable. Um, Was it a case of just one team being on the beach and the other having something to fight for? No, I think it was more of a case of when your luck's in, your luck's in. I think Leicester scored two deflected goals, one corner and then another cross. So it wasn't like the greatest Leicester game they've ever played, but deflections were going in, things like that. 
and uh, they did really do, they did really good corners. I, it's gonna sound really weird, but like five corners they did. Like, I love this. They did done. really good corners. Yeah, like when <laughs> when you actually like look at the game, I, I encourage everyone to go look at Leicester's corners against Liverpool because they were insane. Like they were doing short piece kind of corners that were working out. They were finding corners that were meeting Plumpter's head. I don't know what Willie Kirk was doing in training, but it's paid off. And I think Leicester need to stop playing seriously in like March. They need to start playing like this from the start of the season. I always feel like the second half of the season, you get a much better Leicester than you get at the start. And I feel if you just played this way from the start, maybe you wouldn't end up in these relegation battles all the time. So I think for next season, if they do stay up, like let's give this kind of fight earlier. But then, then the season wouldn't be as fun and we wouldn't have anything to talk about. Um, how, how impressive <laughs> has this turnaround been, Susie, un, under Willie Kirk? What is he doing on the training ground? They do look like a totally different team. I believe I said it as well, Faye. I believe this is one of my predictions coming coming to, to fruition for a change. Hold on, oh, my hold on. We are not at the end, oh, we're not at the end of the season yet. <laughs> yeah, but I, I said, in, Jan- I said uh, in January at the sort of midway point that, um, that if Willie Kirk avoids the drop with Leicester it'll be one of the most impressive um WSL feats in history and I think that's true and I like he's such a phenomenally good manager he is so good about not just getting the best out of players as individuals but building a unit um and a belief in a side that like yeah just it is it like it's really great to see some some joy back in their football again because they really looked quite lost and quite broken at various points of the season um, so yeah, I mean it's brutal, obviously, for the teams around them. Put some pressure on uh, some teams that probably fought well. At, at least we're not Leicester, um, and maybe believe that they were safe regardless. So yeah, thrilling. But like, I'm I'm really excited to see what Willie Kirk does with a summer transfer window. Um, to see how much he's backed. To see how careful he is as well, because. Obviously, um, you know, before he was dumped unceremoniously from Everton, uh, they had signed nine players in the summer, had a really high squad turnover, and it was struggling to gel things. And obviously, you want to avoid that. But when you're not trying to break into the top four, you can be a little bit more like steady and slow with your your development of a squad in a way that um, hopefully less to give him time to do. Mm. Take note, Tottenham and Brighton, perhaps. Uh, the points shared at the Tottenham Stadium. Bethany England once again bailing out Spurs. Goals from Elizabeth Turland and Lee Hyun Min twice gave Brighton the, the lead. Um, Susie, I'm going to stick with you on this because we've spoke about Mel Phillips before and, you know, along the same vein as um, as Willie Kirk in terms of, you know, making a side look completely different to what they, they looked a couple of weeks ago. Um, in terms of confidence, they're, they're both two teams who look up for this relegation at the moment, which perhaps gives them the edge over, over others. Yeah, I mean, like ultimately looking at the that game and the way like Brighton are playing in particular um, with a new manager in charge. Obviously Tottenham have got Vicky Jepsen as like temporary interim manager while they search out someone new, which doesn't look like it's going to come before the end of the season. You're, you're look, Reading have to be worried, right? Really, really worried. But I, I just like, really like Belle Phillips uh, and what she's doing at Brighton. I think they've got huge potential. 
like hope they stay up from that point of view because I'd really love to see what she can do in the Women's Super League season. Um, you know, after doing so well with London City Lionesses before she worked, had that brief stint stateside. I think that's really exciting, the prospect of her managing the Women's Super League. Um, I have to throw in, like, Beth England has to be on the plane for Australia. Like, how? Like, she just has to. Um, another two goals. Obviously, Spurs are really, really struggling. But, like, the fact that she's putting them in despite that, like, just, like, oh, I just don't understand why she's not getting called up to camps. Like, is it an issue with her? I've got, I've, I've got no idea on this. I've got no intel on this. I just, like, for me... Like, she has to be on the plane. She should be starting games. We should be having Russo back on the bench, um, being the amazing impact player that she is and not messing too much with that formula. Um, and the four Beth England's in, I just don't, I just, I just don't get it. But yeah, um, I've veered significantly from the fixture, but I had to have my little, why the hell is Beth England not on the plane for Australia yeah. yet or in the squads yet? It's it's a very good point because that those were her seventh and eighth goals of the season, and at the rate she's scoring at Alex, she'd be up there with Bunny Shaw and Rachel Daly in the Golden Boot race if she'd played as many minutes as them. It, it surely it's becoming harder and harder for Serena Viegman to justify not, not selecting her. Yeah, I think I think the main argument for that, I think when you you can even put aside Beth England's numbers at the moment. Um, I mean, you know, she's undeniably, you know, an out-and-out striker. She's, you know, proven that since she's been at Chelsea. But I think for her World Cup argument, I think the main argument to focus on is that the fact that Alessia Russo has no backup. There is no other striker outside of Alessia Russo. You know, you you argue that Rachel Daly will be that. And essentially, Rachel Daly is the backup to Alessia Russo. And that's just not... It's not realistic in the sense that... Rachel Daly has been putting in numbers, but when you look at, you know, Rachel Daly on a global scale, you're going to be putting Rachel Daly with the likes of, you know, Alessia Russo, with Bunny Shaw, with, um, 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 you know, Sam Kerr, and, you know, Rachel Daly just isn't at that level of, of striker, and you have an out-and-out striker of, of Bethany England who has international experience, who has Champions League experience, who has played with, you know, what the biggest team in in the Women's Super League and she's putting in the numbers. So I think essentially that's that's the main argument is that Alessia Russo does not have a backup. You know, Alessia Russo was Ellen White's backup and that was a, a switch of an out-and-out striker. But now Rachel Daly is is going to be that that backup for Alessia Russo. And I just... It's not unfathomable, but when you compare Rachel Daly, who has been put in so many different positions, that has not been focusing solely on being a striker, I think when you have an out-and-out striker like Beth in England, who's putting the numbers, um, I think she does deserve to be called up. Um, but I think, yeah, the main argument would be that the fact that if Alessia Russo gets injured, you're going to have to play with Rachel Daly for the entire tournament. Is is that going to be, you know, a feasible thing to essentially bring England to win the World Cup? Um, and again, you know, you can argue Rachel Daly's numbers, but at the end of the day, Beth England has been doing this for a lot longer and kind of knows how to deal with that pressure a lot more. You've seen Rachel Daly blunder a few clear chances in very important parts of the match. And, you know, you kind of wonder if she will be able to put that pressure on her shoulders at a World Cup, for example. I think you've seen Beth England do the same, though. That's the thing. Mm -hmm. Like, I, She has, you know, 
when she has pulled on an England shirt and played up front, you know, she's not necessarily performed the best. Like, whilst I'm obviously waving the flag for Beth England, but I think that came at a time when she wasn't playing regular football, uh, which was the big problem. Um, I do think Rachel Daly could do it up top, but with the absence of Leah now as well, that back line is looking like increasingly like a puzzle that is going to have to slot in pieces that don't always work. Ooh. Like, does Rachel Daly have to move backwards again? Like, despite the fact that, you know, she's now playing as a centre forward for Villa, scoring loads of goals in a, uh, you know, a golden boot race. Like, I just don't think that you can remove that entirely as an option, given how um, much defensive overhaul there's going to have to be. Um, obviously, if Millie Bright comes back, that's a big boost. You know, she was on the training grounds the other day. That's great. But, um, like that I think that has to be an option and then so you're weakening the options behind Rousseau even further by potentially having that like dual role again for Rachel Daly um who I mean even like even I would potentially argue that Rachel Daly should start over Alessia Russo because Russo has proved so impactful off the bench but hasn't necessarily proved herself across 90 minutes for England uh, in a way that you know, many other players have. Um, she doesn't quite look ready to be able to sustain that level of presence across 90 minutes in an international shirt yet, maybe. But yeah, for me, Beth England, like, is a form player. She she thrives off minutes and game time. And that's, like, when the goals come. And you've seen that in her starting for Spurs. And, like, yeah, for me, that is... Like, I, I think we would see a completely different Beth England in an England shirt, like, to the one we've seen previously, where she wasn't playing much at all um, to now. Um, and, and weirdly, like, I mean, I was all for her moving uh, in January and moving in the summer even and getting minutes and stuff elsewhere. But you do reflect now on the number of injuries Chelsea have had and think maybe they shouldn't have let Beth England go because there's no one to um, <laughs> no no one to give Sam Kerr a break. Mm. We've veered slightly off of the relegation battle with, with with that chat. I'm gonna I'm gonna stick the gear in reverse, James, and and go back to it because things are looking a little bit worrying for for Reading. Manchester City four, Reading one is is the last game to talk about in in the WSL, and obviously with Leicester's resurgence, you really have to worry for for Kelly Chambers' side. They took a shock lead through Sunny Trollsgaard after just a minute, but it was the quintessential case of scoring too early and Manchester City made light work with 37 shots in the end to, to win it 4-1. I mean, Reading have Villa, Spurs and Chelsea still to come. Alex has, has made a decent case in terms of, you know, um, relegation battlers are going to have more to more to play for necessarily. But I, I, I don't know what you think about it. And we didn't talk too much about Brighton in terms of, Leicester's uh, relegation rivals? I think I'm most worried for Reading. I feel like they haven't really, they they are one of the few teams that hasn't, that's like near the relegation zone that hasn't stepped it up. And I don't see where they're going to find this injection of step up from. I feel like Leicester, they brought in Janina Leitzig, two players like Ruby Mace, like they've done something to actively change their situation. Whereas Reading, I kind of used to this moment but they're not used to other teams being better than them. I feel like there's normally a team that's always worse than Reading, so that's how they are able to stay up. But I feel like how these teams are playing, Tottenham, Brighton, Leicester, Liverpool, they all want to stay up. Where I just I feel like Reading, 
are kind of hoping that teams slip up, but like they're not actively giving everything in their games. I don't see like they've given all their push. Like, you know, like in a long distance race, they do that last kick on to try and win. Leicester don't have anything to kick on. Everyone else is trying to like do their kick on. Like Leicester look like Mo Farah right now, whereas Reading are just kind of like, we're going to hope. And I feel like hope is what's going to get them sent down. Yeah, it, it, it is looking a little bit worrying for them. Really quickly, Susie, we need to just look at the Champions League title race. It's really difficult actually to assess it too much. So I think we'll go into it more in detail next week because obviously there are lots of lots of teams didn't play because they were in European action. But I mean, it, it, it was a big game for Manchester City when you think about it. It gives their goal difference a big boost as well, which it could end up coming down to at the end of the season. Yeah, I... I, I sort of semi-love it when <laughs> when things are decided on goal difference, um, as harsh as that is. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's huge for their goal difference. I like the title race is thrilling. The race for Champions League is thrilling. I think the, the interesting thing that uh, Jonas was asked about after the Wolfsburg game was, like, how hopeful he is as of Arsenal being able to put up a real challenge in the competition next season with, you know, the likes of Beth Mead and Viviana Miedema, uh returning. Kim Little will be back by then. Obviously Leah Williamson's gonna be out a bit longer, but you know, you'd think towards the end of the season might be back. Um and he was like, We've got to qualify first and I really, really worry for Arsenal and um uh Champions League qualification. Um I think it's a really big ask, particularly with that game against Chelsea, the last game of the season being against Aston Villa, uh, the injury to Laura to um, add on to the, the already hefty pile. Um, it, I'm, I'm finding it hard to look beyond United City and Chelsea taking the three Champions League spots. Um, and in terms of the title race, I, I find it very, very difficult to look past Chelsea. Always. Any other fans of teams um, who didn't do very well in, in, in Susie Rack's predictions there? Don't worry about it. Her predictions are usually terrible and completely the opposite of what ends up happening. So keep the faith. Uh, right, that's it. Uh, James, it's been a pleasure. Hopefully see you soon. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Alex, see you soon. See you at a great a game a game near you? No, it won't be a game near you, probably. I, w- I wish it was, yeah. but it won't be. But I'll see you soon regardless. Thank you for having me on. Susie, take care. Have a good week. I will no doubt speak to you on the phone in about 10 minutes. <laughs> Always. <laughs> all right. Take care, guys. Catch we'll be back out. next week for all the remaining twists and turns as the WSL approaches its conclusion. A reminder as well, you can now email us on Women's Football Weekly at theguardian.com. The Guardian Women's Football Weekly is produced by Becky Taylor-Gill and Jesse Parker-Humphreys. Music composition was by Laura Iredale. Our executive producer is Sal Ahmad. This is The Guardian. 